0: All right, we are in the Gospel of John, and where we've been at in the Gospel of John is... Everything that's been happening to Jesus as he's getting sent to the cross, as he's going to the cross, really. So we've seen him betrayed. We've seen him arrested. We've seen him interrogated. We've seen him mocked. We've seen all kinds of things happen to Jesus. Even last week, we got this picture where Pilate, who has the authority, the Roman authority over Jesus to either sentence him to death or not, he, he offers to the Jewish people, hey, we've got this other guy I could release to you, Barabbas, or I've got, Jesus." And who do you guys pick? And they picked Barabbas. And so today, what we are actually going to see, we're going to see more of that scene, but we're going to see Jesus get to the cross. We're going to see Jesus get on the cross. We're going to see Jesus put on the cross today. We're going to get there. We're going to spend actually two weeks looking at Jesus on the cross and here's my hope, or even my encouragement to us, or exhortation, however you want to say it. As we watch Jesus go to the cross and get on the cross, don't divorce the cross from Jesus. Don't, don't separate the cross from Jesus. Don't gloss over the fact that it is Jesus who's going to the cross. Because we're Christians, we talk about the cross a lot, and we should. But then what I've noticed that happens in myself is when I go through these stories where Jesus is going to the cross, I often kind of don't pay as much attention or I separate this Jesus from the cross itself. Here's here's what I mean. Don't forget that the Jesus going to the cross that we'll see get on the cross today That Jesus is the same Jesus that we've learned so much about in the Gospel of John. It's the same Jesus that loves the world that's going to the cross. It's the same Jesus who loved the Samaritan woman at the well who's going to the cross. It's the same Jesus who loves a Roman official It's the same Jesus who uh, loves a woman who's used by religious uh, elite to entrap Jesus or try to entrap Jesus. It's the same Jesus who loves this man in John chapter 9 who's born blind and his own family has uh, abandoned him because of his blindness. And, And yet Jesus goes out of his way to love that Man. It's the same Jesus who loves Lazarus. It's the same Jesus who loves Martha. It's the same Jesus who loves Mary. It's the same Jesus who loves brash Peter. It's the same Jesus who loves cruel Pilate. It's that same Jesus who's going to the cross. That's who's going to the cross. Jesus is not an idea going to the cross. Jesus is a person fully God, fully man, going to the cross. And so as we look at this picture of Jesus going to the cross, do not separate Jesus from the cross. Do not separate who he is from the fact that that is who is going to the cross. I think we, we can do this as Christians at times. I remember Years ago, I was at this, uh, it was like a Christian event, and the event really meant well. But I had been at that time kind of diving deeper into John and diving deeper into some of these stories. And and I began to see Jesus more deeply. And this event, the whole kind of purpose of this Christian event that I went to was to kind of like prove that Jesus really died. To use these kind of apologetics and arguments to show, hey, those people out there that are saying, hey, Jesus didn't really die, he really died. And so at this event, they're, they're describing the crucifixion. They're describing everything that Jesus had to go through. And they're just doing it to, to help us see that, that this man, the historical Jesus, literally died. But what I began to notice at this event, and again, this event met well, and I think the, the leaders are great Christian people. But what I began to notice is we were, we were separating Jesus from the cross, Because it became this scene where where the speaker, he would be describing in gruesome detail how Jesus died. But he was only doing it to prove a point. Or he would kind of make a joke here or make a joke there. And the, the whole crowd would laugh in the midst of this picture of this brutal death that Jesus went through. In the midst of that being described to us. And because I had been spending time in the Gospel of John, uh, John, I couldn't help but just begin to like cry and weep at this bizarre scene where we as Christians had separated, I think, the cross from Jesus. I don't want us to do that today. It can be easy for us to do that. But let us not separate the fact that this Jesus who we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John, that's... Who is going to the cross? He's not an idea. He's not a figment of our imagination. He is a real being who went to the cross. And he's the person that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John here. And so today, my hope, I feel like I probably annoy you in this way as a pastor. My hope is we look at Jesus, okay? I, I, I'm bad at the application sermons and all that at times, but this, my hope is that we would look at Jesus. I think sometimes the best thing we can do with God's word is look at God, see who he is, and just let it cause it to do to our hearts what it will do, which I hope is worship him. And so, my hope is that we look at Jesus. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 19 today is that Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. John has been touching on this idea about Jesus, especially in chapter 18 and 19 here. He's been touching on this idea of Jesus as king. But what we're going to see is how Jesus the king raises up his kingdom is so backwards and so different than how every single king before him and after him have ever raised up their kingdoms. It is absolutely different and ironic and strange how our king raises up his kingdom. He does it by going to the cross. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at these four scenes in the first part of John chapter 19. We're going to look at these four scenes that look at Jesus as king going to the cross in this backwards way. And I want us to just look at it. I'll give some insights, and I'll give probably some challenges and things in the midst of that. But I just want us to look at these scenes. I've noticed that John, as I read the Gospel of John, he just kind of almost writes like you're watching a movie. Like I can imagine the scenes more vividly when I read the Gospel of John for some reason. So here's the four scenes that we're going to look at today. Scene one is we're going to look at the king's inadvertent coronation. Scene two, we're going to look at the king's introduction. Scene three, we're going to see how our king is lifted up. And scene four, we are going to look at the king's first decree. Okay? So let's hop into it. We're going to be in about 27 verses today in John chapter 19. I know it's a lot, but you guys are smart. We'll be fine. So let's start. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Let's stop there for now. Jesus is being beaten, flogged, humiliated. Jesus probably went through multiple sorts of beatings, like official beatings on the way to the cross, and this is one of them. He's being mocked. And then we get seen one of our king. Jesus is inadvertently coronated by these Roman soldiers. He's inadvertently coronated. Coronated is when you put the crown on the king and say, this is the king. This happens in this scene. They crown Jesus as king, but they go out of their way to find branches with thorns on them and make them into a crown to shove and ram onto his head to mock him, to hurt him, to humiliate him. And they get a purple robe, purple being the color of royalty, and throw it around Jesus. And Pilate is, again, he's, he's, he's trying to say to people, listen, this is, I don't find any guilt in him. Look at him. We've humiliated him. He, we've beat him. We've hurt him. They still cry out for his blood. Pilate goes, behold the man. Not in any sort of actual way of honor, but to mock him. Like, behold, look at this guy. This is your guy? This is the guy you want killed? He can't do anything right now. We've utterly mocked him, humiliated him, and beat him. And they still want Jesus crucified. They still want Jesus humiliated even more. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like these Pharisees, where, where, what they're in right now. They have chosen to do evil against Jesus. I really think they know that. I would have a hard time believing that they just have these kind of... There's just other things in the Gospels that make me think they know exactly what they're doing. But maybe they don't. But they are doing evil towards Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation where you've chosen to do evil. Actually, I do know you have been in that situation. And some of you really need to see that about yourselves. But when I've been in this situation where I've chosen to do evil towards someone... there's usually a point where I realize, okay, I've gone too far. I said something too mean, too cruel, whatever. I need to stop. I I wake into my evil, and I I kind of say, i got to turn from that. You think with these guys, you think right here, when they, they have Jesus right there being mocked by the Roman leaders that these religious leaders don't want over them at all, You think in that moment, as Jesus is bleeding, as he has thorns in his head, as he has a a mocking robe on him, as he's there weak and beaten and can't do anything, you think then it would wake them up. But it doesn't. Like these are the same guys who earlier in the day, they said, hey, we're not going to go in Pilate's headquarters Because we're going to get defiled. Because if we're with Gentiles, we're going to get defiled. And if we're defiled, we can't take the Passover. They don't want to go into a place. But they're willing to sentence an innocent man to death. And call out for his blood. And call out for his killing. They've let their evil completely blind them. Don't. Don't ever let your sin blind you this much, church. Don't ever let your sin blind you this much, church. But even if you have, King Jesus has allowed that sort of sin to collapse in on him and humiliate him so that sort of blinding sin doesn't have to conquer and humiliate you. That's our King Jesus, and that's what happens during his inadvertent coronation. Let's keep going. Let's look at scene two in the passage. We're going to jump down to verse 12. We talked a lot about Pilate a couple weeks ago, and we went through uh, verses 8 through 11, essentially. And so if you you want to know more about that, go, go back and listen to that. But let's hop down to verse 12. So, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Okay, we know from what we talked about a couple weeks ago and what verses 8 through 11 say, Pilate's beginning to get spooked. He's spooked by Jesus. He doesn't want to, in one sense, uh, or he doesn't want to send an innocent man to the cross. And so he's wrestling with this, but then he's also wrestling with what the crowd wants. And he knows, man, if I don't do this, this crowd's going to turn on me. There's going to be riots. I'm going to look like a bad governor. And so ultimately, Pilate's kind of being drawn into the whims of the crowd. And the crowd, they begin to use manipulation in order to get what they want from Pilate. Did Did you notice that? They say, hey... This guy says he's a king. We all know Caesar's the real king. Anyone that says they're a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate, if you're not going to kill this guy, you oppose Caesar too. You're not doing your job as Caesar's governor. These religious leaders become sellouts. They don't really think Caesar is king. They don't really want Caesar as king. They don't really even care, probably, if people oppose Caesar as king because they did in their hearts. Go read the Gospels constantly. They're trying to entrap Jesus by making him either declare allegiance to Caesar or total, uh, like, uh, this is why I'm a preacher, totally be against Caesar. That's what they're trying to do. But in this moment... It helps them to kind of manipulate. So they say, listen, man, this is, he's opposing Caesar. Pilate, he sees it right through their manipulation, I think. And this is where we get scene two today. A king's introduction to the people. Where Pilate hates what they're saying. He goes, okay, you say he's claiming to be a king. Behold, it's your king, the king of the Jews. It's your king. Jesus gets introduced and displayed as king when no one in the room thinks he's the king. When no one in the room wants him as king. When most of the people in the room are mocking him and humiliating him. That's how Jesus is introduced as king. So backwards and different than any other king. And then the religious leaders, they double down on on the way they're selling out. (laughs) They double down on it. Pilate says this mocking thing, and they say, We have no king but Caesar. Gosh. They completely sell out. They don't think Caesar's a good king. They don't want Caesar as king. They don't even think God wants Caesar as king. But to get Jesus killed, they'll go, Caesar's our king. Caesar's our guy. Caesar's our man. Because, so that they can keep their power. They want Jesus dead and they declare Caesar as king because Jesus' kingship threatens their way of life. Jesus' kingship threatens their power. Jesus is the true king. These religious leaders, like God has brought the true king to Israel. And he's displayed him and he's put him there. And even though Pilate is saying, behold your king, in some sense that's prophetically true. God has brought his king to Israel and he's saying, look, this is the king of Israel. This is the king of the world. This is the king who's going to restore everything. But that king threatens their way of life, threatens their power, so they refuse to see that Jesus is the true king that God has brought them. And what they do to get out of that is they give their allegiance falsely to a horrible king, Caesar. This, This scene, it begs the question for us. It begs this question for us. What king do you choose... When Jesus' kingship threatens your way of life? What king do you choose when Jesus' kingship threatens your power? What king do you choose when Jesus' kingship threatens your autonomy? What king do you choose? We love to say we're not like this crowd. We love to look at these religious elite and think what they did was so evil and so different than what any of us would have done. But maybe I'm speaking for myself. I think day in, day out when Jesus threatens my way of life with his kingship and his rule and his reign, I often choose a different, uglier, nastier king. this scene where the king is being presented to us should make us wrestle and go, which king am I choosing day in, day out? Which king am I giving my allegiance to? Am I giving it to some sort of Caesar king? Or am I giving it to Jesus? Because God has said to us through the gospel of John and in this text, in particular, in particular behold, you're king. What are you going to do with that? Now, I'll say this as a side note. If Jesus and his kingship hasn't threatened your way of life or threatened your power or threatened your autonomy, I wonder if you've actually seen Jesus as king yet. Some of you might not be relating to what I'm saying, and you're saying, hey, I am following Christ, he does, but he, he hasn't. His kingship has never really threatened my way of life. He's never threatened my power. He's never threatened my autonomy. I would encourage you to, to take a deep look into yourself, to really think about the Jesus that you believe in. I think you might be believing in a Jesus who's not really much of a king and is really a farce with Jesus' name. This scene where we see our king introduce demands us to go, who are we going to give our allegiance to? To King Jesus or to Caesar, which is usually just us. Behold your king, scene two. Scene three, let's go to scene three. John uh, chapter 16b basically is where we'll be at. So they took Jesus. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but, write, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each so- soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Jesus has been telling us that he's going to be lifted up. John just reminded us about a chapter ago that Jesus was going to be lifted up. And so here's where we get scene three. The king is lifted up. But Jesus is not lifted up the way most kings are lifted up. Most kings were lifted up on something called a litter. Do you guys know what that is? A palanquin? The mobile throne thing that you see in all the movies, right? They had a throne, and there would be like four people that would carry it on sticks. And and honestly, this is like a sign of power, I believe, at times. Like, look, there's the king. You can see him coming from far away. He has people carrying him. He doesn't even have to walk to where he needs to go. This is how most kings were lifted up throughout history. But that's not how Jesus is lifted up. He's lifted up by being nailed to a beam. That he can't even carry all the way to where they're gonna lift him up. Others come in, we know from the other, another comes in, we know from the other Gospels, to help him carry this beam to another wooden beam. And they throw Jesus against this wooden beam, the cross, the crucifix, the Roman killing device. This thing that they built in such a way that you just basically slowly suffocate to death until you just couldn't hold yourself up anymore. That's how they lift Jesus up. That's how they lift this king up. That's how our king is lifted up. He's lifted up on a cross, on a mountain that looks like a skull. Death upon death is how our king is lifted up. Our king is not carried and lifted by his servants for all to see. Our king is lifted up by the political and religious powers of the day, not to honor him or to serve him, but to humiliate, mock, and kill him. That's how our king is lifted up. He's stripped naked instead of dressed in the finest linens. They take his clothes. He's robbed of his clothes. He's left there naked, dying on the cross. Some of us get bothered and grossed out by certain depictions of of the cross and the crucifixion, but I think it was probably even worse than that. That's how our king was lifted up, for all to see. As he lives out a psalm of lament, as he lives out a song of pain and frustration and distance from God is that psalm that he is quoted there. That's how our king is lifted up. Not with honor and accolades, but in humiliation, lament, pain, and sorrow. That's how Jesus is lifted up as king. And then Jesus makes this decree. It's in scene four, verse 25 through 27. Let's read this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is up on the cross. He's dying. He's being mocked. You can read the other gospels to see all the other kinds of things that were happening to Jesus during this moment. But he's a king who's been lifted up. And he has a decree to make. There standing by the cross uh, are four women. Now, there's a little bit of debate in the Greek. Like, is this two women, three women, or four women? I think it's four women. I think Mary, his mom, his aunt, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene are standing there at the cross. And and then there's John, the beloved disciple, standing there with them. Now, this is a side note. This isn't even part of my sermon, really, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, in American evangelicalism, we love... To mention often that Eve, the first woman, was the first to sin. We mention it often. We mention it in jokes. We mention it even in kind of oppressive ways at times, I think. But man, I don't see us very often mentioning that you know who is at the cross with Jesus? Four women. You know who is brave enough to stand near Jesus as he was being brutally killed for women? There were more women disciples of Jesus at the cross than male disciples at the cross. That is something we should herald and remember. And so if you're one of those people that mentions Eve sinning a lot, I would encourage you to mention that Mary, all sorts of Marys were at the cross too. To the end with Jesus. Far braver than me, probably. And so, what's happening? What, what we get from the other gospels is what's happening is they're probably coming in close to Jesus, and then I maybe Roman soldiers are telling them to go away, or perhaps that they're just they can't handle the brutality of what's happening to Jesus. And so, you have these four women and John kind of going in close, backing up, going in close, backing up. And I think in one of these moments, as they're going in close, Jesus, as King, says he needs to give his first decree. And his first decree is not rooted in fighting, not rooted in in power. His first decree is rooted in love. Jesus is there living out the psalms of lament on the cross. And yet his mom is there. She's followed him to Jerusalem. She's watching her firstborn son die. And Jesus looks at her and he sees her and he can't help but love her. Jesus is literally and metaphorically fighting the sin and death of the universe on the cross. But he can't help but love his mom. I don't know what happened to Jesus' brothers. I don't know if they're back in Caperna- Capernaum. But either way, it was Jesus' job as the oldest to take care of his mom. And he probably sees her weeping and crying and panicked. And he can't help but love her in this moment. He can't help but say, hey, mom, my, my disciple John, he's going to take care of you. This, this is your son now. He's going to treat you like his mom. And he turns to John, John, this is your mom now. And we see the note that that John took her into his home from that day forward. Jesus, as he's fighting the sin and the death of the universe, cannot help but love. The king's first decree is rooted in love. He wants his mom to know, hey, I know this looks bad. I know things are horrible, but I, I have someone here to take care of you and love you. He's like comforting his mom as no one is comforting him. That's our king. That's our king's first decree. Jesus loves to the end. The kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, it's, it's, just, it's so backwards to us. It's, it's just absolutely backwards to us, right? And even how it is raised up is backwards to us. He's coronated in humiliation and torture. He's introduced in the midst of political mockery and manipulation. He's lifted up onto a killing device. And his first decree is to love rather than to fight. King Jesus is allowing The backwardness of sin and evil in this world to be the mechanism in which his kingdom is lifted up and raised up. King Jesus defeats the evil powers of this world by allowing those evil powers to exercise what power they think they have over his life. That's our king. Don't miss it. Don't... Don't stop yourself from seeing that. He loves the end. He's allowing evil to collapse in on himself so it doesn't have to collapse in on us. He's allowing sin to collapse in on himself so it doesn't have to collapse in on us. That's our king. Give your allegiance to that king and see the power of his ironic coronation his ironic introduction, his ironic being lifted up. Give your allegiance to that king and see him for who he is. May we see Jesus as that king. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a good king. You are a kind king. You are a loving king. God, help us to see the cross and all that it displays. Help us to live into this, God. Help us, Jesus, just help us to see you. I think so often we just gloss over this stuff. God, we all struggle in our allegiance to you. I ask that today, as we just went through this, that our allegiance to you is deepened. You are a good and loving, kind king that allows the backwardness of this world to cave in on you so it doesn't have to cave in on us. Help us to be grateful for that. Help us to see that. Help us to see you as king. Holy Spirit, you know what you want to do in this moment in our hearts. I ask that you would have mercy on us and do it even if we're resistant. You are king. We love you, Lord. Amen.